0: If you'd like, you can listen to God's Word, or you can turn there in your Bibles and follow. Luke chapter 2, verses 25, and I'll read down through verse 35. Luke 2:25. This is God's eternal Word. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he, Simeon, came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is God's word. Let us pray. Lord, how we pray now that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Lord, speak to us. Your servants are listening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love Christmas. It's like an old friend, a reunion. You haven't seen her in a while, and when you see her again, you have so much to get caught up on. But like old relationships, after a while, conflict sets in, doesn't it? And in this case, with this old friend, the conflict that creeps in sooner or later relates to scheduling and stretched budgets or burst budgets. Traffic, family reunions, which are like old friends, both a blessing and sometimes a difficulty. And sometimes even hurts, reminders of old heartaches. Because Christmas has this sort of dual character, I think it's important to be reminded, to be encouraged, to keep Jesus at the center of Christmas to help us manage this seemingly contradictory season. Who better, then, to bring that encouragement than old Simeon, a first-century Jewish prophet whose perseverance and years of waiting finally paid off. God's message to old Simeon was something like being told, Mr. Henry, congratulations, you're the proud father of a new baby boy. I'm just giving an illustration here. <laughs> You're the proud father of a new baby boy. Just wait in the hospital waiting room for the next 30 years, and it'll come eventually. Simeon would see with his own eyes the Redeemer that God's people had hoped for for thousands of years, the Savior of the world, but he didn't know when. What would that have been like? Day after day, Simeon basically went to the temple and checked his mailbox for the message. Have you ever checked an empty mailbox? You know you're expecting a letter. Maybe it's a college admissions or a report card. Maybe it's a a a promised announcement of some sort or another, and it doesn't come day after day. All you hear is an echo in the mailbox. I imagine Simeon's experience was something like the experience that some of you children have had before, where you're waiting, you see a present that was maybe not so lovingly placed under the tree very early, and you get to look at it day after day, and told not to touch it. Except the secret of your present probably isn't like Simeon's secret. Because Simeon knew what was in the present. He just didn't know the day. You don't know what's in the present, but you do know the day. Simeon had been told before he died, he would, not by faith, but by sight. Behold, lay his very eyes on the one that was promised to be the comfort of Israel, which is what verse 25 of our text says. Literally, Simeon was promised that he would hold in his arms the glory of God's people. When would it happen? When would it happen? Finally, the day arrives. Do you know what that's like? You've been waiting for something, waiting and waiting, and then finally it's here and you it's sort of like you don't even know what to say. Those are the times when you want to turn to the person next to you and say, pinch me, am I dreaming? Is it really here? Is it really happening to me? That big moment, Simeon's big hour, came. So if it's such a happy occasion... My question this morning is why do we read in Simeon's speech in verse 34 that this child was destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel? Why, if this is this long-awaited hour that, that we've been expecting and hoping for for such a while, why, if that's the case, does our text say that he is a sign that will be opposed? That he will literally be spoken against? Why, if this is such a great day, would he tell the mother in her happy hour that a sword literally will be run through her heart, through her soul, through her life? Some commentators think that Mary herself was martyred and that this was a prophecy of her death. I don't know whether that's true or not, but certainly this is speaking of the heartache that this mother would go through, who, standing at the cross 30 years later, would see her own son dying. So we see, sort of like our own experience of Christmas, a contradiction, an apparent contradiction in God's Word. And I think examining this contradiction will help us to get focused on what's important not only at Christmas, but for spirituality in general. That by thinking about the tension that exists in this story, we can actually have guidance for how God wants us to live our lives all the time. So I've titled my message this morning, Christmas Comfort. We're going to look at three things this morning about Christmas Comfort. First of all, the basis for Christmas Comfort. We're going to look at its basis. And then we're going to look at its experience, experience of Christmas comfort. And finally, we'll see the perfection of Christmas comfort. And I'm going to give you, for those of you who like puzzles, I'm going to give you a hint that there is a surprise at the end of the sermon. So I'll see if you can pay attention and see what it is. First of all, the basis of Christian comfort. What does basis mean? If I say basis, what's the basis of something? You're thinking, what? Isn't it the beginning? Or the bottom of it? Or the essence of it? I think the clue to the basis of Christmas comfort can be found in verse 34 of our text when Old Simeon says to Mary, did you notice that? (coughs) He blessed the parents. He gave them a benediction, literally a good word. But then he speaks to Mary and he says, this child is appointed, is set for the fall of many in Israel. This statement, the fall of many, echoes, I believe, an earlier statement by a much better known prophet, King David, who himself wrote that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. David in Psalm 118 and the words that I've just read speaks of the promised Messiah as the key cornerstone or capstone in a massive building of humanity. God is erecting a structure composed of human beings and the cornerstone or capstone depending on how you translate that the cornerstone or capstone is Jesus. Apparently, He has entrusted the erection of this building to to a group of people that he has called the builders. And the builders apparently are not satisfied with the cornerstone or capstone that God himself has sent. I guess in the intervening period, they took the plans that he gave them and customized them. They made a few modifications, widened the driveway a bit, put an extra window in the master bedroom, maybe enclosed the porch, added some landscaping. Well-intentioned customizations, no doubt, but customizations nonetheless. And we can see the net result of their customized work on these plans that when the capstone or cornerstone finally comes, they reject it. It's not shaped correctly. It's misshapen. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And so what David says is that this stone that the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Why were the builders so uncomfortable with the comfort of Israel? Why were they so upset with this final stone. I think the reason is the same basic reason we are uncomfortable with Jesus today. He doesn't fit. He doesn't fit our expectations. He doesn't fit our paradigm. He doesn't conform to our little modifications, our customized religious plans. As a stone, now, as then he still seems to be the wrong shape. The reason is, I believe, like us, they had taken comfort in their religious paradigms and practices rather than the uncomfortable and much less predictable plans and purposes of an almighty, all-sovereign, mysterious creator and redeemer God. Visiting the United States decades ago, the Anglican bishop, T. Cannon Hammond commented on the state of American Christianity, and he said that the American God is just a little taller than the average man, six foot four, and handsome. And this idea has been referred by some writers as domesticating God, you know, making him safe for children. And I see this being a problem for us as a Christian community. Too often in our day-to-day, we demand God on our terms the right denomination, the right Bible translation, worship done decently and in order. After all, the pastor is the one that you pay in case revival breaks out to calm everyone and say, it's okay, (laughs) this will soon pass. And we'll be able to return to things as usual. And this may feel comfortable to us. It isn't necessarily God's kind of comfort, is it? Is that really what Simeon meant when he said this is the consolation or the comfort of God's people? No, I believe true Christmas comfort begins, has its basis... By falling down. That's what Simeon said. He is set. Literally, he's set out there. He's been destined and for all eternity has been prepared for this moment for the falling down of many in Israel. That's his mission. I love the contemporary Christian song called, appropriately, All Fall Down. And I'll repeat these lyrics again at the end of the sermon, but listen to this. It's the chorus. Fools stand only to fall. The wise trip on grace, but all fall down. I'm reminded of what what Paul says in Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Footnote. Footnote. Hold cursor over word to see it pop up to the explanation. All, fall, all will bend the knee before God, either willingly or unwillingly, right? Ironically, until we fall down before the face of God and acknowledge our need for his grace, we can't be even one bit useful to him in accomplishing his mission for us in this world to bring a blessing to others, to the lost, even as he has been a blessing to us. As I heard recently, all paths lead to God, but only one path leads to heaven. So we're going to come into an encounter of falling down before God one way or the other. The question is whether we'll be part of that great assembly that is described by John in Revelation, where we cast our crowns before him in joyful adoration, or if we will fall down before him in agony, recognizing, forcibly recognizing his holiness. I wonder what keeps us standing. What keeps us on our feet? Is it our sense of how things ought to be? Maybe we have a very sort of controlling personality. We like things just so. Is it our fear? Our fear of loss of that control. That if we fall down before an invisible God, we just don't know what he might do. Isn't this at base... Even if it's described or explained in very self reflecting, self kind of denying terms, isn't that really at the bottom pride? As a practical example of this, think about someone you have trouble forgiving, someone whose fault you're having a difficulty overlooking. And I know this applies to just a couple of you. Why is it that we have trouble overlooking faults such as these? I love the quote from the old Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones when he says, I say to the glory of God, I can't repeat his brogue, I'm sorry, I say to the glory of God and in utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and realize even something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I am ready to forgive anybody anything. That's falling down. This child is set for the falling down of many in Israel. I wonder, are you one of those people? My second point, and to sum up my first point, the basis for Christmas comfort begins getting that basis. You have to grasp this counterintuitive idea that our Savior calls us to follow a crooked and unexpected path, away from self, away from control, away from power, away from comfort, and there to find comfort, because Jesus himself meets us, as David writes in his famous psalm, even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. And that's my second point, the experience of Christian comfort. Christmas comfort you see the basis is not the same thing as experience the basis is sort of our theoretical framework but then we need to move into experiencing that Christmas comfort and the way that we do that is discovering that he is with us that's the Christmas message Emmanuel God is with us he will save his people from their sins The second part of Simeon's pronouncement to Mary in verse 34 is not just that he is set for the fall of many in Israel, but what? He is set for the rising of many in Israel. I think these go together in some mystical way. That having been set for the fall of many, we are then in a position to to receive from him what he has set for us in raising us up. This word for rising or raising is a wonderful word in the Bible. In the original text, it's Anastasis. We get the girl's name Anastasia from this word. And often in Scripture, this word refers to resurrection. Think about that. He is destined for the fall, the humbling, the reducing the dying of many in Israel, and for the rising and the resurrection of many in Israel. You see, only a cruel God would humble us and leave us there. But God is not angry with us fundamentally. He loves us and He sent His Son not only to cause us to fall, but then to raise us up again. Our experience then of Christmas comfort comes from Jesus raising us up to our feet, like he lifted up the paralytic who was born paralyzed and had never walked, and he, he said, Take up your mat and walk. Doesn't don't you love that story? Or did you forget that you love that story? Jesus Himself bending down and giving his hand and says, Arise, take up your mat. You who have fallen, stand up and walk. David puts it another way. When Jesus raises us up, he puts a new song in our mouth, a song of praise to our God. Hannah, another way. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap and seats him with princes. I love the idea that recognizes Jesus is no longer on the cross. Do you know what I mean? I think the passion of Christ is very important to to understand the the pain that he went through, the agony, the suffering, the, the burden, the horrible, awful, torturous nature of that event. I think that's very significant. But fundamentally, he is no longer there. He fell into the jaws of death. But on the third day, beloved, he burst those chains in resurrection power, king of the universe, and came out declaring victory not only for himself, but for all his posterity. By trusting in his work for sinners, we are raised up. I think this is a shock to some who see Jesus merely as a good moral teacher or as an example. They they think that there are many things in Jesus' life that are good to imitate, that he was kind and selfless and took care of the poor, and isn't that the kind of thing that we need today after all? To hear that the message, the experience of true Christmas comfort comes by literally experiencing that falling down, and then actually experiencing that rising up, that resurrection arising, that, that is an analogy to and that is somehow parallel to his own resurrection. That sounds a little bit too, sort of, there's too much hocus pocus in that for some people. They much prefer sort of the Jesus as a good prophet, but not one in whom I believe in his death and resurrection for me. I think this idea of of death and resurrection is also a shock to others who may know the Christmas story and have their Christmas schedule and Christmas cards and traditions fairly well set down through the years in some cases, but have forgotten their place in the Christmas story. That's why I think the experience needs to follow the basis, that we can know about the basis of Christmas comfort. But if we're not experiencing that, if we don't see ourselves literally written into his story, then we're missing everything. Whether you deny the need to experience God's comfort outright or simply have forgotten about that comfort, the real answer, according to Simeon, is to recognize the purpose of Jesus' coming. This child, he told us, is the Savior of the world. His purpose was to enable us to experience God's gospel comfort by obeying the law in our place Isn't it interesting that his parents, this is the one time in Jesus' life where the law was kept not by himself, but by someone else for him? That his parents bring him to the temple to do for him according to the law. But the picture of Jesus' life is that he has obeyed the law in our place. Where we have broken it, he has kept it. And where we deserved the curse of having broken the law, he received the curse for having broken the law. Something he did not deserve. Now that, that is Christmas comfort. And if you don't know that, if you don't believe that, if you don't live that, you are not experiencing Christmas comfort. I think this also suggests that what we're all about as Christians is not so much about hawking a plan of salvation as experiencing in our own lives the reality of falling down in death before the throne of grace and being lifted up in resurrection power. And having experienced that, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, others know, they know that we're not like they are. Just to make this very practical, the other day we were doing a holiday tradition that we observe more often in the breach than in the practice, and that's sending a Christmas letter. That's hard. We've got a lot going on in our house. I know you do too, and it's hard. Those of you that can get out a Christmas letter say, I mean, we got, a Christmas, we got some Christmas letters, I think, January, or excuse me, December 3rd, 4th, 5th. I mean, these people have it together. <laughs> So we decide to uh, to uh, do a Christmas card, and so what we're going to do is take a picture and write a little bit on the back and get it done at Walgreens and sort of using all that new easy technology that's available. Taking a picture is what I'm getting to. <laughs> so at one point in the in the event, I said, "I don't care if you are happy. I just want you to look happy." In the true Christmas spirit of it, am I right? (laughs) I think Christmas chaos is something that's uniquely American. It has to do with all of our abundance. Matching clothes for a picture. Help me with that. All of these stresses and all of these frustrations are a product of our abundance. Yes, they're a picture of a society that is richly blessed, but we can also see them, and I don't mean to be overly critical, but we can also see them as an indication of a society that has gone astray. That we have lost the basis of Christian comfort, and therefore we do not experience Christian comfort, we need a reminder and a refresher that is at least as potent as the challenges that we face at this time of year, if not more so, and I thought of this, if Christmas pressures abound, we need grace to superabound all the more. Such a grace, such a power, such an experience, we do have in the Christmas comfort that God gives us from his word this morning. A word that describes Jesus, a child who has been destined for the fall and rise of many. A child who has been destined for the death and resurrection of many. For the despair and the real hope of many. So did you figure out the quiz? I said there was a surprise at the end of the service. I've only given two points. The third point was the perfection of Christian comfort, Christmas comfort. The perfection of Christmas comfort. I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave you as Simeon was left for so many years. Checking your mailbox, showing up at the temple, waiting, praying. Faithful, devout, fearing God and anticipating that day when we will see him in perfect glory. Until then, we need his grace. We need to cry out to him, to call on him, to help us as we have experienced Christmas comfort but not its perfection. It's perfect in one sense but in another sense it's greatly lacking. Let's ask him for that strength now as we conclude in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we desire for others who have no hope, others who are filled with thoughts of despair and loss and grief, others like my friend who on the very mention of a Christmas Eve service began crying. Lord, we desire these ones to see in us and perhaps even to gain from us a true experience of Christmas comfort. We confess We do not experience that comfort as we should. And so we are not in a position to share it. We're not in a position to to adorn the gospel with our lives because our lives are so much not like the gospel. God, would you please send us Jesus again, cause us to fall and then raise us up that you can accomplish your purposes in this world, which is to make a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for yourself and to use us in that great mission. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.